Glad y'all are here tonight. I was kind of worried when it started raining that none of y'all were going to come back tonight. And then when Brother John said I was preaching, I figured definitely nobody would come back. But I'm glad y'all are here, and I'm glad that y'all have come back out on this wet night, and we're glad y'all are here. Um, it's kind of funny because Ben's here tonight. In the past, every time I've preached, Ben hadn't been able to be here, and I'm glad he finally took time out of his busy schedule to be here to hear me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, that's all bet. <laughs> but um, up until last night, um, I knew what I was going to preach on, but then, you know, God gave me something different last night when I got home. And uh, so I'm going to do this. Uh, if you were with me on Wednesday night up with the youth, you're about to hear the same thing you just heard on Wednesday night. I'm sorry, I'll have to rehear it, but it's good. And I think that um, this is a good message for all of us. And one of the things that I have to think of in my life is something you can think of is what is the most courageous thing you've ever had to do in your life? You know, just think about what have you had to be really, really strong to do? Um, I know for me personally, the hardest thing I've ever done is ask Mallory to marry me. Because that's a big step in life, obviously, and I was terrified when I did it. But praise the Lord, she said yes, and I didn't have to go through that heartache and heartbreak. But, you know, we all do a lot of scary things. Just this past week, um, David and Wayne convinced me to go up in this attic. I don't know if any of y'all have ever been up there, but it's just this long, weird hallway thing. and It's got like three light bulbs in it. <laughs> And it's pitch black, and it is literally the scariest place I've ever been. Um, it's terrifying up there. If they ever tell you to go up there, tell them no. Tell them to find somebody else. Don't do it. It's scary. But, um, you know, we've all had to be very, very brave. Um, there's times in our lives where we have to stand up for what we believe in and what we know is right. And it's the same thing with our faith. There's times we have to stand up for our faith, and we have to be strong. We have to have uh, what we call courage. Um, and for most of us in this room, it's very important to us that we be liked. We, we like to be liked by other people. Uh, we want to be part of a group, and you know, we want to be accepted by everyone. But the sad thing is, we can't always be accepted by everyone and follow Jesus. That's not how it works. Um, and Jesus, he had a very special viewpoint for people that were, didn't really fit in, that were kind of outsiders in a way. Uh, when you look at his disciples... The ones like uh, Peter, James, John, all them, they didn't really, they weren't really big people. They weren't nothing fancy about what they did. They weren't CEOs of big companies. Some of them were fishermen. You know, they were on like the bottom of the social ladder, which meant, you know, they didn't, they weren't real popular, popular people. They were just ordinary people. Uh, then you look at Levi or Matthew, where he was a tax collector. And back then, I mean, people hated tax collectors more than they hate them now. Um, you know, they took more money from, you know, the people they were going to collect the taxes from than what they were supposed to, and they kept that money as profit. So they were cheats. They were um, they cheated people out of their money. And Jesus called these people to follow him. He, fought, he called some of the worst of the worst to come and follow him. And that's good news for us because I don't know about y'all, but I'm one of the worst of the worst, and I'm glad that Jesus chooses to use me. He called me to follow him. And Jesus, he challenged his disciples he challenged them to follow him no matter where he went, whether it was popular, whether they would fit in, whether it would make them part of the group or not. He said, follow me. He said, I will make you fishers of men. I will make you great. Um, so I want to look at a story about someone in, in the Bible that had courage, a lot of courage to stand up for their faith. So uh, would you would turn me to the book of Daniel chapter 1. And 
there's a lot that's happened um, in the Old Testament so far, but this happens about 600 years before Jesus comes. And let me just kind of set the scene for you. Um, about 600 years before Christ, uh, the mighty nation of Babylon invaded Jude- Judah, Judea, I'm sorry, yeah, Judah, get my words twisted, uh, invaded Judah. And they took a lot of the brightest and they took a lot of the best and a lot of the strongest and the youngest people captive. They took them prisoner and they brought them back to Babylon. And what they did is they put them to work. Some of them got put in physical positions. Others got put in government positions. Uh, and Daniel and three of his friends, they were put into a service to be trained to be government officials, to be politicians for Babylon. So this is what's happening. Uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 5. I'm not going to ask you to stand because I'm going to be reading this in section. So in verse 5, it says that the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So these guys, they're pretty much slaves. These guys have been taken captive out of their homeland and taken to somewhere they're, they're very unaware of. And they're sitting around, they're eating their dinner. And according to this, they're eating the same exact food that the king is eating, that Nebuchadnezzar eats. So they're eating the best of the best. If the king's having filet mignon, they're having filet mignon. I mean, they're eating every single thing that the king eats. To be slaves, these these four guys, these four young guys and the other ones that were with them, they were living in luxury compared to what we would consider a slave today. Um, you're not going to walk in a, in a prison today in the United States and see someone eating the same food that Donald Trump eats every night. You're not going to see that. So these guys really, really had it made. Then in verse 6, it says, Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So here's the four guys we're dealing with. If we notice, each of them have two different names. Um, the first name, obviously, is the name they were given when they were born. It's their Jewish name. It's the name that they're accustomed to while they were living in Judah. And these new names are their Babylonian names, the names that the Babylonian officials decided to give them to better identify them. Now, the thing that I wonder is why they really decided to change the names, why they didn't let them keep their names, because the name Daniel is a lot easier to pronounce than Belteshazzar. I mean, that's that's just a mouthful. I mean, I'd rather my last name probably be Smith than Konzorski because it's a lot easier to pronounce and spell and nobody's asking you how to say it. So you wonder why they changed their names, and here's why. The name of a person, it's important to their identity. It defines who they are. Um, say, for instance, if I've wanted to get Holly's attention, I would say, Holly, will you come here? I wouldn't just say, come here and expect Holly to know I'm talking to her and come up here. She wouldn't know that. That's why we have names so we can identify with each other so we know who we're talking to. And the king and the chief official, their idea, I believe, was was that if these four guys accepted their Babylonian names and began to use them over their Jewish names... They might forget about where they come from, and they might be more willing to serve Babylon's king more willingly. They might serve him without question. So in verse 8, this is where the story kind of starts to unfold here. This is really the part I want to hit. It says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So Daniel stands up in the middle of dinner, and he says, I'm not eating this food. I'm not going to defile 
my body by eating this food. Now, we're not told here why Daniel does not want to eat the food. It's presumed that it's probably because Daniel's Jewish, and it's probably pork, and that's against their law. They don't eat pork. I don't know why. I love barbecue as much as anybody else. I don't know who would come up with such a crazy law why you couldn't have pork. But they didn't eat pork, and that's probably one of the reasons. It's also possible that Daniel didn't want to be pampered by these Babylonians. He didn't want to become so used to this new culture that he forgot about where he come from, that he forgot that he was a Jew who served God. He didn't want to forget that. He wanted to know because Daniel was a very strong-minded young guy. Remember, these guys that were put into the government service, they're the brightest and the best that Judah had to offer. So Daniel's, Daniel's a bright guy, and he didn't want to forget that he was a Jew. Now look in verse 9 here. I'm going to be reading a good bit of this. It says, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who has signed your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned, over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days, and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, and tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink. And gave them vegetables. So when we start reading here, we see that the chief official begins to get scared. He begins to get worried. But see, this chief official is in charge of these young men. They're in char- he's in charge of their well-being. So if these guys aren't eating, they're going to start looking unhealthy. They're going to start getting sick from eating. Does anybody else get angry or sick when you don't eat? No? Nobody? Jerry does. He's with me back there. So, you know, we all start feeling bad when we don't eat we need to eat to live and if these guys didn't eat they're not going to be able to do what they're being asked to do and that would fall back on the chief official so he's worried you know if you don't eat the king's going to chop my head off and then it's going to be the end of my life so he's really trying to get them to eat now the question is you know why didn't the official look at him and say you know forget it dan you know get with the program eat the rich people food and get over it why didn't he do that well we see the answer to that in verse 9 it's because the official liked daniel it says that god gave the chief of the unit's compassion for Daniel. He gave him favor with Daniel. So Daniel suggests to this official, or to this servant, that is, that they have a food test for 10 days. Um, He says, you know, let the other slaves continue to eat this rich people food, all the nice food the king eats, and give me and my three friends, give us water and vegetables. So at the, you know, and him standing up for his faith and what he believed to be right, what God told him, I'm going to see if y'all get this, what God told him, Daniel not only was strong in his faith, but Daniel was also the very first vegan. Daniel was the very first vegan. Just hang on. That's hilarious, y'all. Come on. <laughs> Daniel was the first vegan. Um, that's a little history lesson for you, but <laughs> some of y'all are starting to get it. So the question has to be asked, you know, why didn't Daniel just look at this official and say, you know, I'm not eating that food. You can't make me. There's nothing you can do about it. Well, here's why. Starters, Daniel was a captive in a foreign land. He was in one of the greatest nations of that day. You know, he was in one of the mighty empires of that day. So 
if he would have said, you know, there's nothing you can do to make me do it, I mean, they would have just killed him right then. Because, you know, remember, he was taken captive from a, from Judah, and they have hundreds and hundreds of people captive probably. So just losing that one, I mean, it's nothing. They're not afraid to kill this one person for speaking out. So Daniel speaking out against these people could have cost him his life. But it also seems that Daniel has a little bit of care and compassion for the official, for the situation that the official's in. He doesn't want to cause any trouble. He doesn't want to cause any trouble where the official gets in trouble because they're not eating. But at the same time, Daniel still wants to honor his God and what he knows is right. This is very important because Daniel took a courageous stand for what he believed in, but he wasn't obnoxious about it. You know, there's nothing worse in this world than a Christian that thinks they're higher on the ladder. They think they're better than everybody else. There's nothing worse because as Christians, we we should be the ones to understand that we're the lowest of the low. That's why Christ had to come in the first place because we were so low. And see, nothing is more annoying than, say, Daniel. Daniel could have looked at this official and said, you know, I'm Jewish and I worship God. You're not. When I go to heaven, I mean, when I die, I go to heaven. And when you die, you go to hell. Daniel could have said that to this guy easily, but he didn't because he cared, because Daniel wasn't obnoxious about his faith. See, in our lives, we sometimes have to make those courageous stands for our faith, for what we believe in. Not necessarily about food, but for things that people want us to do. And people say, why don't we come out and do this? Or, you know, why don't we go out and go party and do a bunch of stuff we shouldn't be doing? And you got to say, you know, no, I don't want to do that because that's not what my Bible says. That's not what God tells me to do. He tells me not to do that stuff. See, we want to honor our Christian lives, but we have to remember that the first command of Jesus Christ is to love, is to love the Lord your God and to love others. In Matthew 22, this is what he says. It says, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, one of my favorite things is that when you look at the Ten Commandments, you can divide the Ten Commandments up into those two. You know, the first five say pretty much love God, and the last five say love others. Because if you love God and you love others, you can keep the Ten Commandments. It's that easy. Um, so Daniel showed love and respect in his situation that he was in, and he seemed to receive it in return. He seemed to get that same love and respect back. So at the end of the food test, after the ten days, um, it's not a surprise in today's world, especially, but in our health-conscious world, that those that were having the veggie diet, they were a lot healthier than those that were eating the king's food, all the seafood and lobster tails and whatever else you can think of. They were healthier. So we have to think, you know, there's rich people-type food that's offered to us, today, things that we don't need but we still kind of want in a way. You know, there's things out there like gossip and drugs and alcohol and things like that, things that seem very, very appetizing to us, but we know that we shouldn't do it. Now, this is how we can apply this. Um, we have to remember that the food that Daniel said he wouldn't eat, it wasn't necessarily sinful food. Really, It wasn't really sinful food. I mean, it was sinful for their time, but it wasn't necessarily bad food. Um, see, just because you're an American... And you go to a Chinese restaurant, eat Chinese food, it doesn't make you a sinner because you're eating food from somewhere else. You know, it's just, it's not what he believed in. It's not his faith. It, it, it doesn't make it wrong. Daniel didn't want to be so overwhelmed by his new culture that he forgot about who he was. That he forgot that he was a Jew from Judah who served God. He wanted to remember that. He wanted to stay strong in his faith. And for many of us in here, our, our rich people food 
you know, it may be things like, you know, social media or, or hobbies that we have or, or football in the fall or, or shopping or, um, even actual food. You know, those things aren't necessarily wrong, but they're not who you are. They shouldn't define the kind of person that you are. Um, they shouldn't make you into the person that you want to be. They should be just things that you do, not completely define you. So when Daniel took his stand, he challenged all of us to take a very hard look at what really is healthy for us, healthy for our spiritual lives, what really helps us become better and more focused servants for God. In the book of First Peter chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So something we need to take from this is we need to realize that God is holy, that God is worthy of every single praise and prayer and the shout that we can give him. Every single act of worship that we can give to God, he is worthy of every single bit of it. But here's the thing. No matter how much we give him, no matter how much we come to church, and no matter how much we sing, and no matter how much we preach and read our Bible and share the gospel, it'll never really be enough. You know, as a Christian on this earth, you never really finish your job. You can never give too much because God's worthy of so much more than all of us can offer put together. He's worthy of all of it. But here's the cool part. You know, it says that he who called you is holy, but he says you also be holy. So God wants us to be holy too. He wants us to be just as holy as he is. That's why he sent Christ to make us holy, to rebuild that bridge that we separated ourselves from him with. Um, He wants to set us up for a different kind of life, a life that's different from the lives that we used to live. You know, we could all probably tell about how we're different people today than we were before we got saved. I'd hope every single one of you can, because when Christ changes your life, he changes it for the better, and he takes away all that bad and all that nasty stuff. It's not just about keeping a bunch of rules. You know, being a Christian, you know, being a follower of Christ is not about, you know, just coming to church and reading your Bible and praying and sharing the gospel, signing up for VBS, whatever else you can think of. That's not what it's about. Those things are good. Those things need, those things are good to happen. But see, what being a Christian is about, it's about living in a relationship with a living God. It's about being in a continual relationship with Him. That's what a relationship is about. Um, you know, I know in just a couple of short months, I'll be up here, you know, I'll be doing my wedding with Mallory. And, you know, I'm going to commit myself to her to take care of her and, you know, to love her and provide for her and all these things. And that's the same thing that Christ does for us. When we become Christians, when we ask him to live in our lives, he takes over and he takes care of us and he comforts us and he cherishes us and he provides for us. He takes away our sin because that's what he does. Um Something I told the youth on Wednesday is that, you know, it makes no sense for us to conform to our evil desires, to conform to our temptations. The word conform means to actually put something into a mold, to like squeeze it into something, to make it a shape that it's not. See, it's not who we are. We're still the same thing. When you put like a block of Play-Doh, a ball of Play-Doh, you're going to think of, and you put it in a mold, 
it's going to look different, but there's still going to be the same amount of Plato there. See, we're still going to be the same people on the inside, or however you want to think about it. We're still the same person, but it makes us look different than what we really are. It makes us something we're not. And that's what happens when we indulge ourselves in those temptations. Then in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 14, it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, sinful behavior is a process. It comes step by step. Sinful behavior, you don't just start sinning necessarily overnight. Um, I've told most of y'all in here, I think everybody knows this, but my big thing before I got saved is, was pornography. That was my thing that had, had a grip on me, that had a stronghold on me. And see, when I first started feeling the urge for pornography, I would pick up my phone and I'd see something. And I'm like, okay, I don't want to do that anymore. Then I'd look at it again and it'd become a little more, I'd be looking at it a little bit longer and I'd have to put it back down. And then, you know, after a couple of times, before long, I'd been sitting there for three, four hours because it had taken over my life because it gradually it had slowly began to try to take over my life. And see, that's what sin does. It happens step by step. The longer you put off your sin, the worse and worse it's going to get. The longer you refuse to give it to Christ, the worse your sin will get. See, it happens step by step. You know, people will say, you know, I never wanted to get this involved in drugs or alcohol or, you know, gossip or theft or whatever it is. It just happened. No, it doesn't. It just happened. It happens step by step. It doesn't just happen like that. See, if we take a firm stand and have courage and stand up to the devil and say, I'm not going to do that because God told me no, those sins go away. Because when you ask the devil to flee from you in the name of Christ, he goes away. Hoping to get a little more of amen out of that, but okay. <laughs> but yeah, those sins go away when we trust in Christ. Um, then look at the book of Hebrews. Chapter 10, verse 23, the writer writes, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have to help each other be everything that God wants us to be. We have to help one another. We're supposed to be living in community. You know, one of my favorite things in the Bible that I like to read is just four or five little words. But it talks about when Jesus sent out his disciples, how he sent them out in twos, in groups of two. That's because Jesus wanted them to be there for one another, to encourage one another, to support one another, to hold each other up, to hold each other accountable. We're meant to live together in community. We're meant to be together. We're not meant to be alone. That's why we come to this place to worship so we can worship with one another and talk about all the wonderful things that God has done for us. See, it's not just about your personal stand for Christ, but it's about standing up together. It's about standing up for Christ, about standing up, helping each other to stand up. We need to help each other. Then in Galatians Chapter 4, this is my last one. Galatians 4, chapter 4. Galatians 4, verse 4, there it is. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's a powerful, powerful verse of scripture right there. Our relationship with God 
It should be based on love for him, not fear of what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, those things are going to come after us, but we shouldn't live in fear of that stuff. We should just place our hope and trust in God and trust that he loves us and that we love him enough that he's going to take care of us. See, again, it's not just about keeping all the rules. It's not about coming to church. It's not about reading your Bible. It's not about all that stuff. It's about loving God. It's about loving him and doing what he did for us. It's about how we demonstrate our identity as being children of God. It's about how we take our stand and we have the strength to say, I'm not going to do that because God told me no. It's about having that courage. We're God's ambassadors. We're his representatives. We should represent his kingdom. When people see us, they should see God. They should see God in us. They shouldn't see God around us when we go to church or just when we're at church. They should see him in us every single day. So, Let me wrap this up. Um, Groups are very, very important to us again, like I said earlier. We feel this need in our world to be accepted. We feel like we have to be accepted by everyone. You know, we want to be accepted. um, But sometimes that need for acceptance can become very dangerous. When we are more concerned with being accepted by our group of, of friends or colleagues or coworkers or whatever it is, and we're more concerned about being accepted by them than we are about Christ, that's when it becomes dangerous. Because when you become so concerned with what they think instead of what God thinks, when they try to tempt you to do something you shouldn't be doing, you're going to be more apt to follow them instead of God. You won't have the courage to stand up because you'll be more worried about what they think instead of what God thinks. That's what it's about. It's about standing up for God. So I want to ask y'all the same three questions I asked our youth on Wednesday night. The first one is, is are you willing to take a stand for Christ even if it means that you have to do it alone? So if every single other person in the world forsakes the gospel and says, I don't want to trust in him anymore, I don't believe none of that stuff, if you're the only one left in the world that believes the gospel, will you still love him and still trust in him? Will you still want to follow him? I'm going to tell you like I told the youth, if you can't say yes to that question just like that, then you probably need to evaluate your relationship with God. Because when you love God that much, when you truly are in a relationship with him and you love him, you're going to do whatever it takes to please him and do whatever it takes to worship him. And you're never going to leave him. You're always going to want to be drawing near to him. You'll never forsake him. And then the second one is, are you willing to influence others more than they influence you? Are you willing to be a part of that community and help one another and help each other stand up for what they believe and for what you believe in together? When you see that person, you know, being put down for their faith, are you willing to go in there and help them and pick them back up and help them to share? And finally, are you willing to live out the reality of your true identity as a treasured child of God? We're all, I mean, I hope everyone in this room is a child of God, but if you're not, <laughs> you have no idea what you're missing out on. It is the most amazing thing that can ever happen to your life is becoming a Christian and choosing to follow Christ. See, when you become a, when you become a child of God, all those things like going to church and reading your Bible and praying and, um, and sharing the gospel with people, you know, signing up for VBS, all those other things I mentioned, those things come because when you're a child of God, you want to do everything you can to help further His kingdom. That is what being a child of God is. You do everything you can to worship Him and give Him back because Jesus came and paid everything for us. So we should live our lives trying to pay everything back that we can to him. And it won't be until we leave this life and get to heaven that we can truly give it back to him. 
But on this earth, we should do everything we can so that as many people can hear the gospel as they can. So I want to pray, and I want to do invitation a little bit different tonight. I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask you to sing. I'm just going to ask you to pray. I'm just going to ask you to pray exactly where you are. If you want to come to this altar, this altar is open. I will ask you to pray. So let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we thank you. Father, we're so thankful for your grace and your mercy and your and your presence with us and everything that you've done. Father, there's so much that you've done for us that we're so unworthy of that we, we just don't deserve. Father, I ask that you help us all to be courageous in our lives, Father, that you ask that you help us all stand up for you where we need to. Father, we're so unworthy of your grace and your love and your mercy, but Father, I know we all need strength sometimes. We all need that help. And Father, I ask that you give that to us. Father, I ask that you help that one in here that hasn't put their full trust in you, that hasn't let you take over, that they haven't had the strength to make that courageous stand for you. Father, we love you so much. We thank you that you sent Christ to die on the cross for us. But Father, most of all, we thank you that you let him come out of that grave three days later. Father, we're so thankful. Father, we love you. And as we continue to pray together, church, I'm going to play a song that we did during our D-Now weekend. And this song's been stuck with me for two weeks. And I haven't been able to get my mind off of it. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. So I want you just to listen to the lyrics of this song. And um, you just pray right where you are. You just pray and ask God to give you strength and give you help and give you courage. called me friend constantly condescends failure has called me friend fear has known my name poison my heart with has known my name, but the cross says that I'm not a failure. The arms show how far love would reach, and the nails driven into my Savior are driving the fear out of me. And the lies that condemn me are broken The shackles are shattered by love And the word of the Father has spoken So heaven declares it is done So it is done has called my name Oh, what a sweet refrain Mercy has called my name 
has a heavy hand Shame finds a way back in But I hear your voice again And the cross says that I'm not a failure The arms show how far love would reach And the nails driven into my Savior Are driving the fear out of me And the lies that condemn me are broken And shackles are shattered by love And the word of the Father has spoken So heaven declares it is done So it is done, it is finished I am forgiven and I'm not defined by the things that I've done You're my authority and you won't abandon me And I won't deny you your love So it is done, it is finished I am forgiven and I'm not defined by the things that I've done You're my authority and you won't abandon me And I won't deny you your love And the cross says that I'm not a failure The arms show how far love would reach And the nails driven into my Savior Are driving the fear out of me And the lies that condemn me are broken And shackles are shattered by love And the word of the Father has spoken So heaven declares it is done So it is done Amen. The Lord's good, isn't he?